Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Diane Windsor. Diane, thank you for joining me. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Let's start by getting to know you. Tell me three things about yourself <laughs> that you think the audience would find interesting. You know, I've, I've tried to prepare for this because I've listened to some of your other podcast episodes, and of course I didn't, so now I have to wing it. But um, I do have a, a small publishing company. Um, called Motina Books, and my little tagline is we publish books by mothers and for mothers, and that's uh, something that I love to do. I love the whole process of editing and formatting and everything and getting the message out into the world. Um, another thing I love to do, I am a sourdough bread baker, and I am not a COVID sourdough baker. I started doing this about three years ago, so... <laughs> And I was actually inspired by an Australian woman named um, Ellie. I'm not sure of her last name, but she, her, her page is Ellie's Every Day. And um, yeah, I think we're just going to have to stick with two. Those are probably the most two interesting things about me. <laughs> well, that's great. I, I'm a big sourdough fan. I really love sourdough bread. Cool. And, it's, and when it's well done, it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, yeah. It's very satisfying. Um, you know, just build your starter from scratch and then just, you know, three little ingredients, flour, salt, and water, and that's it. And you get this beautiful loaf of bread that is so delicious with nothing extra added. So it's a lot of fun. So let's uh, talk about your personal story because there's, there's really two aspects to this interview. There's your personal story, and then there's the book you've written, which was largely right. inspired by your experience. Uh, which one would you like to start with? Um, well, let's start with our cancer story, because that is a big part of what inspired the book, and we can, we can talk about that if, if that's cool. Sure, let, let's go right ahead. Okay, so in 2018, um, my 20-year-old son was diagnosed with leukemia. And I, I live in Texas. He was living in Minnesota at the time because he is, um, he's an independent guy and he didn't want to live at home with mom and dad anymore. So he went up to Minnesota and he was, he was doing well. He was um, kind of going to school part-time, but he was more working, living his life, enjoying himself. And in, in June of 2018, we had been talking on the phone and he told me that he wasn't feeling very well. And of course I'm thinking, okay, he's partying a little too much. He just needs to pull himself together and get off the couch and go to work. <laughs> but he went to the clinic and they did a blood test and they said, I think you have leukemia or lymphoma. And he called me right away and I have to tell you, I, I was not happy. I was pissed off at the doctor because I thought, how can he tell my son this information just based on a blood test? You know, uh, he must certainly need more testing done before it's determined that he's got some kind of cancer. That's ridiculous. 
Um, but now that we know, you know, the normal, the normal number of white blood cells per microliter is around 10 or 12,000. And his number was 300,000. And so that, that was like through the roof and could only indicate some form of blood cancer. So um, it took a long time to go through treatment. The first, the frontline treatment for leukemia, and this was a pediatric cancer, even though my son was 20 years old and technically an adult, he was treated at a children's hospital with a pediatric protocol. And my understanding is that they did that because um, a younger person, a younger body could handle a pediatric protocol, like more chemo, better than an older person, like somebody in their 50s or 60s could. Um, so we had to spend some time up in Minnesota because he wasn't stable enough to be moved back to, to Texas. I wanted to move him right away, and they said no. But eventually, we got him back home. Um, a lot of chemo, a lot of steroids. It seemed to be working. He was, uh, they did periodic bone marrow biopsies. And we got down to like 0.5% of leukemia cells in his bone marrow, which sounds like that's not bad at all. But in order to be considered in, in remission, there, there can be no evidence of disease in the bone marrow at all. So basically, it turned out that the chemotherapy was not going to work for him. So it was time to move on to plan B. Now, when, when a person goes through chemotherapy, and I'm sure a lot of people understand this, it wipes out everything. Um, it destroys your bone marrow, it, 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 which, which produces your blood cells, uh, red cells, white cells, platelets. Um, and so he needed to have a lot of transfusions throughout this process because his body wasn't producing the, the blood products that he needed. So they needed to be um, transfused into his system. And along with his bone marrow, all of his antibodies to any disease that he's ever had or, or been vaccinated against is also wiped out. He's really compromised and at risk for any kind of, you know, illness, basically. So you have to be really careful. I mean, even, even if somebody has a cold, you don't want a person with this kind of immune system exposed to a cold. So chemo didn't work. This was in the fall of 2018 that we found that out. So plan B was actually very cool. It's a new type of immunotherapy that was only recently approved by the FDA in the, in the US and is called CAR T-cell therapy, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. So in your bloodstream, one of your, um, is it the, it must be the white cells, is a, is a T cell because it's one of the infection fighters. And what they did is they put a catheter into his neck to collect only the T cells. So his blood went out of his body into a centrifuge machine and they spun it around and spun it around really fast and they separated only what they wanted to remove and then put the rest back in them. <laughs> 
And that was a long process. It took like five or six hours. And um, then they sent the T cells to a pharmaceutical company who modified them. And the way they modified them was so that they would only target the leukemia cells once they were put back into his body. Um, and it's really, in, in some cases, the infusion of these new cells, the CAR T cells, it can potentially cause some side effects that are dangerous, like neurologically, it can cause some problems. There can be, um, what do they call it, CRS, cytokine release syndrome, which can cause high fevers and um, dizziness and a lot of nausea and stuff. But in, in my son's case, he did very well. He stopped taking chemo, of course, because the chemo would destroy the new cells and you, you want this, the new T cells to multiply and attack the leukemia cells. And I remember he told me three weeks after infusion, he said, I am starting to feel like myself again. Ever, yeah, since the first time since he started treatment for his leukemia. And so that was really, that was really cool. And 30 days after infusion, there was no sign of, um, of leukemia cells in his bone marrow. So I think CAR-T and immunotherapy like this is probably going to be the new frontline treatment of cancer at some point. Right now, I think it's, well, when he had it, it was only approved for non-solid tumors or blood cancers, but I think that it's in trials for solid tumor treatment. That is a really extraordinary therapy. I had not heard of that before. So uh, thank you very much for explaining it in such detail. The idea that they are capable of removing T cells, simply extracting them from the blood and then modifying them and then putting them back in. That is just utterly mind blowing. But what an extraordinary development. That is really something. It is, it is pretty amazing to me as well. I was just, when I heard about this, I was like, what, what is that? And there really isn't too much information available yet or, or it, there wasn't at that time. This was well over a year ago, but um, it's this immunotherapy stuff is really cool, and it's it doesn't damage the body the way chemotherapy and radiation do. You know, it doesn't have those. I mean, he he was miserable. Anybody's miserable going through chemo, right? If you've ever known anybody battling cancer, and um, and I'll say I've known one or two people before my son, but more at a distance, you know, this is my first real close-up experience with somebody battling cancer. Um, I do know that there have been people who have tried every type of treatment for, let's see, leukemia, and nothing works, and then they tried CAR-T, and it really was life-saving. There's actually a gentleman in New Zealand named David Downs, who is very vocal and a real advocate for, for this type of therapy. And they didn't offer it in New Zealand when he needed it. And so he, he paid out of pocket to come to the US and have it and have the treatment. But um, 
yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty cool stuff. And there was also a little boy in the UK who needed it. And they raised a lot of money because it wasn't covered by the NHS in the UK at that time. And they came over as well. And, um, and he's doing great now. So it's, it's really just an amazing life-saving treatment for a lot of people. That really so, is fantastic. Because, of course, chemo and radio, although they, they are effective, they're pretty much just forms of carpet bombing. And they, yes. As you say, they wipe yes. out everything. So the hope is that you will kill the cancer before you kill the patient. I agree, exactly. And that can be a pretty fine knife edge sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, never mind the lasting damage that it does and the amount of rebuilding the body has to go through after the the treatment exactly but to be able to do something so specific and targeted without damaging the rest of the body that is a, a stunning breakthrough yep. and yeah a, another fantastic piece of science that was not brought to us by anti-vaxxers <laughs> exactly <laughs> and it was brought to us by big pharma i mean this was novartis who was a big pharmaceutical company and we were very lucky um, to have decent health insurance. So our, our health insurance covered it. This was a $500,000 treatment. And I'll tell you, though, that Novartis has a compassionate care fund so that if a patient's insurance is not going to cover it, they would have. So while I understand Big Pharma pulls a lot of crap like insulin prices and the EpiPen thing. And um, there, there's plenty of other examples. I was very pleasantly um, surprised to hear that they would have covered this cancer therapy if, we, if my insurance hadn't been able to or, or refused to. So That's actually a very smart move on their part because if – uh, they've recently developed this and only just got it approved by the FDA. It makes a lot of sense for them to take what for them is just a small hit on the price of the treatment to gain a huge amount of excellent publicity for that's their true. product and yeah, treatment. And if they've got sufficient confidence to offer it in in that way right. having been approved by the fda must have gone through considerable testing already so it works it works out well for them so yeah there's definitely a, a market benefit for them too but it, it still runs counter to the idea that big pharma is always lying to us is always up to some dodgy shenanigans That's in the right. background and is always hiding cancer cures so that no one can get That's cured right. of cancer can only ever be treated innocently. I mean, this, <laughs> your son was successfully treated with a, with a, a cure for his cancer. So, I, you know, this kind of narrative falls know, apart pretty quickly does. when it's exposed to the it cold does. light of it reality. Does. Well, but I will say CAR-T does not always last for everybody. They call it a success if those modified T cells stay in the patient's body for a year or longer. And unfortunately, after three months, there were signs that they were starting to go away. And Brendan was still in remission. They even called it a deep remission. There was no sign of leukemia cells. But he had B cell leukemia. And the, the CAR T cells do not discriminate 
when it comes to the B cells. They're really just going after the B cells. Um, they just want to make sure that they're getting the leukemia cells, which also happen to be B cells. So if there are healthy B cells, they're getting them as well. So Brendan's healthy B cells started coming back. And that was an indication that for whatever reason, the CAR T was not going to work for him long-term. But it did get him to be a good, to a good place for um, a transplant because a patient has to be in complete remission in order to have a bone marrow transplant. And bone marrow transplant, stem cell transplant, those terms are pretty much interchangeable. We did not have a good live bone marrow donor match within our family or on the registry. So they used stem cells that came from donated umbilical cords. And he had a um, stem cell transplant on June 28th of 2019. And so again, you know, of course, he had not had any chemo or radiation or anything while the T cells were there because they wanted to make sure the T cells were doing their thing and everything. But to prepare for the transplant, full body radiation, lots of chemo, again, to deplete the bone marrow and make room for the, the new stem cells. And transplants are rough. There are a lot of side effects from all of that radiation and chemo and everything. And it was a, a 51 day hospital stay because the patient has to um, wait for the new cells to engraft. And um, uh, luckily they did. And we were discharged in August of 2019. And, um, but there are a lot of precautions that we needed to, to take once we were discharged. Like he had to be on like a low bacteria diet. We had to have somebody else watch our dog. There could be no animals or live plants in the home. And there's this uh, magic 100 days post transplant where he can't do any of this stuff. So but he, he did well. But again, <clears throat> extremely immunocompromised. He had no immune system left. And I remember um, he had been discharged, but we still had to go for weekly checkups. They did blood, blood tests, make sure his counts were looking good, make sure he's looking good. And we were driving down to, um, to the hospital one day for a clinic checkup. And listening to the radio and they start talking about a measles outbreak in a, a county in texas and he just looked at me and he's like is that close to us I'm like i'm not sure and it turned out to be in the houston area which is very very far away from where we are in the dallas fort worth area but still this is a concern that he has to have here he is fighting cancer with no immune system and he's got to worry about measles outbreaks because people don't trust the safety and efficiency or effectiveness of vaccines these days for some ridiculous reason. And people forget that a measles outbreak, even if it's in another state, all that means is it's a plane ride away, mm -hmm. a bus ride away, a car day trip away. That's not very far no. in real terms. People forget that just because it's, it's a significant distance now, it doesn't mean that it won't be coming to you exactly. very soon, you know, within a week, within the day, within the right. next three hours or so. Right. 
And it's that kind of complacency that allows these diseases to spread beyond their initial breakout areas and then create new clusters elsewhere where people haven't even expected mm -hmm. to see any and never thought that, that it would come to them. And, and we've seen that with COVID-19 cropping up with the extra waves, the first wave, second wave coming through certain communities that had previously got a handle on it. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, we had to be very, very careful. Um, and he's doing well now. He is almost a year and a half post-transplant. He is back up in Minneapolis, uh, which is good because he didn't like living in my house, which was fine. He's <laughs> pretty, much a, pretty much a grown man. But, you know, there were nurses at the hospital who said that a diagnosis like this is more difficult for a young adult or maybe a teen who's just in high school and enjoying their high school or college years or something because they're, they're living their life. You know, little kids, they're used to being home with mom and dad and that's where they expect to be. But the last thing my son wanted was to have to come home and have us take care of him. Um, so, so on the, the, issue of the t-cells does this mean his body has to learn how to create those new t-cells itself or or, or well, what well because of the transplant the stem cell transplant the car t stuff was basically wiped out because it wasn't working but he he is still not um vaccinated against anything I remember I asked him like a month ago, I said, because he's still going to um, clinic once a month for routine blood work. He's got a little bit of graft versus host disease because, you know, just like with a solid organ transplant, patients can go through that with a with a bone marrow transplant. And it's not bad. It's just kind of um, skin irritation and stuff like that. And he's still taking immunosuppressant pills. So as long as he's taking those pills that medication it's to combat against the graft versus host disease but it also means that it's still suppressing his immune system and so he can't be vaccinated while he's taking those i had him ask the doctor you know ask when you can be vaccinated again because there was a big measles outbreak in um the minneapolis area not too long ago and i think is it religious reasons that people aren't vaccinating up there or something or I, I believe there was, uh, there, was a there was a bunch of anti-vaxxers who came through and put a big scare into some of the local minority communities. There's a big um, Somali population up there, it. the that immigrants, the immigrants yeah. yeah. So the anti-vaxxers went through there and convinced a lot of them that the measles vaccine, the MMR, was okay. dangerous and either threatening or could damage the child's fertility and this kind of thing. So that meant that uh, local community leaders suddenly found people avoiding vaccines and they had to work very hard to try and rebuild yeah. that confidence. Yeah. But in the meantime, yes, an outbreak did occur and it ended up being quite a persistent cluster. Right, right. Which is um, scary to me as a mother, you know, it's because I know that he could be protected against this if he had not had cancer and not had his immune system wiped out and still not taken these pills to suppress his immune system. I would be 
you know, he would be vaccinated because he's as pro-vax as I am, you know, he doesn't question it. Um, but unfortunately, you know, he's one of the people that herd immunity should be protecting right now. Yeah, it's ironic because uh, anti-vaxxers who always love to inflate what they perceive as the dangers of vaccines, they say, well, I won't set my child alight to keep yours warm. The implication being, of course, that vaccines are as, are as dangerous as setting your child on fire, which is pure nonsense. But even if the principle of that argument had any merit, it still wouldn't work because, in fact, the opposite is true. By not vaccinating, they are potentially lighting your child on fire because your child has a suppressed immune system and is doubly vulnerable to um, to diseases that it he could otherwise exactly. fight off either with the help of a vaccine or if he's lucky enough with a robust yeah, immune exactly, system. Exactly, exactly. Right. And that's interesting um, <laughs> that you mentioned, you know, the, the potential hazards that these people think that vaccines cause. And they think that vaccines can kill people, but Aren't people living longer today than they ever have before in history? And uh, isn't the world population larger than it ever has been? And, you know, I, it drives me crazy that people think Bill Gates is evil because his foundation has done so much for people in in poorer countries by bringing vaccines there and for vaccine research and development. And, I mean... It, their logic just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, this is all very true. For most of human history, the average lifespan has ranged between 30 and 45 years. Now, admittedly, a lot of that is due to the fact that infant mortality rates have been incredibly high, which sort of artificially keeps the, the lifespan, the average lifespan sure. low. But again, infant mortality is something that can be addressed mm -hmm. with vaccines and other advances in medicine and science. And the only time in history that we've actually started to materially increase the average human lifespan is when we started to develop superior technology, science, and medicine. Mm -hmm. That wasn't until about... Uh, the 11th century AD that we began to see a much higher average um, average lifespan. Okay. By the time we reach the 1500s, it's up to about 60, which is a mm -hmm. significant advance. And and now, of course, globally today, run in in um, in 2020, even accounting for widespread problems across developing nations like war and famine and, and pestilence and this kind of thing, the average human lifespan is still around 70, 72. And then, of course, in, in some highly developed countries like Japan, it is insanely high. Average <laughs> lifespan in Japan is something like 82 to 84, which mm -hmm. is... And that's average. Yeah, yeah, that's average. That's, that's amazing. Crazy. In Australia, it's, it's pretty high too. I think we, we're somewhere between um, 75 and, and 78, which is, mm -hmm. which is not bad. Um, but yeah, all of these developments were achieved 
not by turning our back on science and medicine, but by embracing it and, right. and succeeding and developing. And of course, vaccines have played a huge part in all of that. That's right. Vaccines have been a huge boon and vaccines have been massively responsible for a drop in infant mortality rates, for example, mm-hmm. because diseases that would otherwise kill a child at the age of you know, 12 months or 18 months or two to th- five years can now be vaccinated against and, and completely prevented. And that's just an extraordinary breakthrough. And where vaccines aren't doing the job, it's advances in medicine and science. And mm-hmm. yes, in hygiene, certainly advances in hygiene and sanitation have played a big part, but that is all tied in with science and medicine as well. Right. But there's nothing really that anti-vaxxers can point to and say, we can take credit for that. Our community did that or our, our mentality did that. There's nothing in human history that shows that their approach has actually advanced the human race at all. Mm -hmm. And if vaccines were the, this big killer that they're supposed to be, it's hard to understand why at a time when more humans are being vaccinated than at any other time in history, our lifespan is just extraordinary. And now people are starting to talk about the potential overpopulation of the planet. I know. (laughs) So you, um, you brought up a, a point about um, infant mortality, and this might be a good segue to talk about my book because at the end of the book, I included a little bit of bonus material, and it was written. It's a blog post that was written by a friend of mine um, whose father, this was back, I want to say, in the 20s or 30s, 1920s or 30s, so a good 100 years ago. Um, his older sister died of pertussis when she was three and he had pertussis. And so it's, it's a very moving story. She gave me permission to include it in the back of the book of how her grandmother was in one room with her dying three-year-old and then running to the other room to take care of like her, I think he was 18 months or 12 months at the time, who was fighting for his life with pertussis. And, and she titled this, um, this blog post, Aunt Betty Wasn't Vaccinated. And she talks about how entire ch- families would be lost because it's so incredibly contagious and it's so devastating to a young child you know, baby up to, to toddler age, they often didn't survive. And people don't, they don't remember that. They don't, it, people today have no idea what it was like for that kind of thing to happen. And that a lot of times people would have like, I don't know, this is, this is a crass way of saying it, a second litter of, of children. <laughs> because I, their kids died from these diseases that are now preventable and they so they would have more children. It's, it's just ridiculous that anti-vaxxers today don't, don't realize that or, or don't take that seriously. So it's, it's very clear if you, if you visit any graveyard, say in a, a church that dates from at least the late 19th century 
you can see it all there, literally written in stone. Exactly. You know, five children, six children, yeah. even ten children. Yeah. And then look yeah. at the date of birth and the date of, of death. death. And yeah. those lifespans are sickeningly brief. Yeah. So, yeah, why did people have big families? Because once you accounted for all the infant mortality, right. the family didn't end up being that big They're after big. all. They exactly. were trying to, to make sure they had a kid that actually lived beyond its fifth birthday. Yeah. And people forget all of this because they haven't seen it for themselves. They haven't witnessed for themselves exactly. and they haven't spoken to people who lived through that. Now my, my grandmother who's, who's dead now, but she lived through the great depression and she saw the impacts of all these yeah. diseases, not just impacting on families that weren't particularly well to do or families that, that were struggling to make ends meet, but she saw how they they ripped through families of all standings in society. Right. Because it didn't you know, matter how how wealthy they were. The technology wasn't there. Matter. The no, science that, wasn't there right. yet. Yeah. Yeah. There were no vaccines, and everyone, you know, even people who had access to good sanitation and good good hygiene, it didn't make any difference to diseases that don't care about those those things. Measles doesn't care if if you live a Correct. a healthy life with top class sanitation and world class hygiene. Right. Yeah. Right. It'll rip through your your family anyway and exactly. it'll do its damage. Um so no, she she witnessed all of this kind of stuff. And I also I have a personal friend in in Western Australia. He's Italian and he caught polio as a child who was one of those mm. unfortunate people who lived just before who was a child just before the, the polio vaccine was developed. And he can walk today, but not without the aid of crutches. Mm -hmm. His his legs are permanently damaged. Mm -hmm. And again, you don't see that anymore, thanks to vaccines. And as a result, people have become complacent and convinced themselves, well, maybe these these diseases weren't that common or or weren't that bad or the effects weren't so terrible. And people are exaggerating these days. All you have to do is talk to someone born you know, even in the 40s, and if they hadn't, mm-hmm. hadn't seen it, they would know someone who has, or they would know someone in their family who had who had been through this sort sure. of stuff. Sure, But exactly. as all of that recedes into the past, thanks to vaccination, of course, vaccines have become the victims of their own success. Mm-hmm. People don't have that recent memory of these diseases and the damage that they can cause or or the tragedy that they can inflict on families. It's devastating. So they just think, you know, this is just how things are, and those diseases can't have been that bad after all. Right. But yeah. if you go to the cemeteries, you will you will see that. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's we've we've moved on to your book now. So um, let's back up a bit. Go to the start of your book. Let's talk about the premise of of your book, and and how that was inspired by your your personal journey so yeah i um i really wanted to get this story written down and i thought a good way to write down write about the cancer journey was um to fictionalize it and create a young adult novel and like i said i've i've really been passionate about vaccines for a while not and even before my son's cancer diagnosis um 
but also this novel was really inspired by the story of Ethan Linderberger and he's the young man in Ohio who when he turned 18 started looking into um, becoming vaccinated because his mom is an anti-vaxxer and she never had him or his siblings vaccinated and um, there are different laws regarding minor health care and the decisions that they can make um, in various states in the US but apparently he had to wait until he was 18 to make that decision for himself and um, that he went and got vaccinated against his mother's uh, advice or wishes and he, he was a big story in the news at that time and i was just like wow that's really cool and so what my young adult novel is about is called stuck and the main character is cassidy and she is a high school student and she is stuck between her family and her beliefs and um her best friend, Angie, the two of them are in their junior year of high school. They're enjoying their time together, uh, running track, going to parties, having a good time, thinking about college. And then Angie is diagnosed with leukemia. And Cassidy, as her friend, is by her side, um, vows to be with her, support her through this battle. And unknowingly, she is infected with the measles and doesn't realize she's sick goes and hangs out with angie in the hospital and infects her immunocompromised friend and angie dies and so cassidy is devastated of course because she believes that she killed her friend and she decides to try to find a doctor who will vaccinate her even though her mother does not approve and even though she is still a minor she's 16 she's not 18 yet so that is the story and my reason for making it a young adult novel is because i would like to try to reach young people with this message that vaccines are safe and effective even if you have uh, both of your parents or one parent who disagrees and hasn't vaccinated you or had you vaccinated as you were growing up, it's, at some point you're going to be able to make a choice for yourself, whether it's when you're 18 or before you're 18, and, and they should be informed and they should know, I mean, what the, what the potential outcomes are because death is a possibility, unfortunately. So I noticed that Cassidy, as you say, Cassidy is, is 16 and in the book, she goes, she goes to get vaccinated and she can do that because she's, she's old enough. You no, said, she can't um, do Ethan it. Ethan was 18. She, she cannot. Oh, she no, but she, she was able to convince the doctor to do it. Oh, that's right. Because she's they, she had a parental form that had already been. Yeah. Signed, and, you know, honestly, this this is a work of fiction, Dave. Right. I'm not saying that any of this is yeah. is accurate. I, I really don't think that at least in Texas, that any doctor would treat a minor like that without the explicit consent of their parents. So just in the story, she was able to go find a doctor. And she, she cried and was emotional and said, I killed my best friend. I don't want to do this to anybody else. Please vaccinate me against anything else that I could possibly get and infect somebody with. So 
Yeah, that confused me a little because um, in in Australia, the age at which a child can uh, can seek and, and receive um, simple medical treatment without the knowledge or consent of their parents oh, is actually is. fourteen. Throughout the and, throughout the entire yeah, country, that's, a, that's across that's okay. across the country. Okay. Yeah, so. I thought it was odd that she was being presented as a minor ah. at the age of 16, but that makes sense. That makes sense gotcha. to me now. Gotcha. Of course, in, in Australia, the age of consent is 16. So below 16 okay. is a minor and 18 to drink alcohol and, and get your driver's license. So we're 16 so, to get your um, driver's license. We're still 21 to drink alcohol. Okay. Um, I think 18 is, uh, 16, 16, you can get your, your okay. learner's license. I think 17 or 18 is when you can gotcha. get your provisional license. And, and by the time you're 18, you've got your, gotcha. your full license. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's, that's what just confused okay. me. So I was wondering about this, this parental form. I was wondering if that, if that was a, an actual thing in, in America or if that was just a literary device that you'd. Yeah. That you'd, it's not a, I don't, it's not a thing to. as far as I know. It's, okay. it was just fiction. It's part of <clears> the story. Yep. It works. It okay. works quite naturally <laughs> though anyway. And, and, uh, it, it provides an explanation for that. But yes, now I understand why she's, why that is because you've, you've guys have got a higher age for, sure. for seeing a, um, a doctor. But it, it, yeah. it does depend on the state um, in the U.S. I, I, I looked into this a little bit and I was surprised to find that like, I think in Alaska, a, an 11 year old can make all medical decisions for themselves. So it just, it just depends on where they are. But in Texas, it is still the age of 18 when you're considered an adult. So when Cassidy realizes that she has been responsible for her friend's infection, how does that affect her relationship with her friend's family and how does it affect her relationship with her anti-vax mm -hmm. mother that i already know because i've read the book <laughs> but let's, let's give the audience a hint. <laughs> i'm glad you read the book <laughs> um she is very worried and very concerned that her friend's parents are going to be furious with her and hate her and blame her because she feels like she's to blame. She feels completely responsible. So why wouldn't her parents? And you know, that she's very saddened by this because she spent so much time at their home growing up and everything. But of course the parents are rational people and they do not blame her for the death of their daughter. They say, no, you didn't kill her. The cancer did, you know, she, she had this weakened immune system. It wasn't your fault. And then Cassidy does blame her mother. And she is actually surprised that her mother does not accept responsibility for not having her vaccinated and putting her in this position. And honestly, this might be a bit of a spoiler, but I didn't want to leave it like that. I wanted, I wanted them to end up having a good relationship. So they were able to work it out. Because I really, I didn't want it to break up the, you know, the mother-child relationship. And that might be because I'm a mom. <laughs> I would hate that. 
Well, well, I'm a dad, and I would have either left it as a cliffhanger, would you? Or, or, a, or a devastating breach, yeah, <laughs> for the extra drama. There you go. Well, I tell some people that, um, you know, in the story, Angie dies, and they're like shocked. They're like, oh, "You killed her?" I'm like, "Well, it, it's real. <laughs> yeah, it can happen." When Cassidy goes to see the doctor, she goes to. A, a local emergency center. I, I can't remember what they call e, ER or it's, something. It's an urgent um, care center. We have a lot of these here care. now. This is something that's fairly new within the last 20 years. It, I, it They kind of call it a dock in the box. Have you ever heard that term? Uh, no, no, I, no, I, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> it's just like Our a standalone. Our system is very it, different to yours. So. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> different. So instead of needing to make an appointment with your primary care physician, your family doctor, or it used to be just doing that or going to the emergency room at the hospital. This is kind of a, an in-between option where it's certainly not as expensive as going to the ER at the hospital, but still, you know, it's still a doctor, you still get decent care, and it's easier to get into, but you don't have the personal connection either, you know, like I know my doctor knows me, I know my doctor, I go see them at least once a year, maybe twice, but, it, but if you need to go and get antibiotics or something, um, you can just go, and they're everywhere. They're so it's a convenient way to, to get primary care, the only disadvantage is that you don't have someone who's got your your medical background on on file and they right. know and but yeah. you're not going for that for that kind of thing anyway you're just going for a, a for a basic service most likely yeah that you can get from from anywhere it's um, like whataburger they're everywhere <laughs> <laughs> i noticed she has to use uh, she has to show insurance as well why does she, why does she need to show an insurance card for this <laughs> Otherwise, it would be a lot more expensive. They still, um, so if you have health insurance, a lot of times you just have to pay a copay. It's not covered 100%. Just a visit to the doctor is not going to be covered 100%. There's typically a copay of $20, $40, something like that. And yeah, if if you have your insurance card, even if this is not your regular doctor, you're expected they're going to file it with your insurance and hopefully get paid by your insurance company. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah. Cause in Australia we have universal healthcare. So yeah. you just rock up and you don't get a bill because you know, Hey, this is a service you've already paid for with your, with taxes, your taxes. So why would you get a bill? Sure. Um, so our universal healthcare system is called Medicare and it is funded by a a little charge called the Medicare levy, which is one point five percent or uh, yeah one point five percent of your income once you reach a certain income threshold and 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 that's all it is that doesn't um, sound like too much you know because i don't think it's too much I'm sure, to be honest I've, i'm sure you know that um we're going through a lot of these conversations in the states right now and people think oh if we had a universal healthcare system you know they were going to take 40% of our paycheck or something but 1.5% doesn't sound too bad to ensure that everybody has decent 
medical care and health insurance. No, that's, uh, we, we think it's pretty cool. Uh, obviously, if you're a, a very high income earner, uh, up to a, a, a much higher threshold, I think it kicks in somewhere around 110 or maybe a bit further, at least at least 100,000 anyway. There's an additional 1% one, 1% called the um, Medicare levy surcharge. So that just ensures that people who are really at the, at the top end are paying are paying their fair share but even then the the, the very most if you're a, a very high income earner the very most you'll be paying is an extra 2.5 percent mm -hmm. and i honestly don't think that's a massive no, burden. It doesn't sound like particularly it. since in, in australia the basic tax-free threshold at uh, tax-free threshold is twenty thousand dollars a year so your first twenty thousand dollars isn't isn't taxed mm -hmm. anyway and eighty percent of australians are on the basic tax rate. They pay more, no more than about 33 to 35% tax. That's 80% of, of taxpayers. So I really don't think we're, we're getting, we're getting screwed out of our, our salaries right. here. I, I just don't think that's, is it a flat a, tax? A big... Do you have a, a flat tax? Oh, no, no, no. no. Okay. We have a, we have a, we have a sliding okay. scale. We have a sliding oh, scale. Yeah. It, it's just that it's the the bands are quite broad. So yeah, because eighty percent of Australians fall below, say the uh, you know below I think around eighty to hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars income or salary, most of us, nearly all of us, are, are paying a tax you know, between 33 and 35% mm -hmm. simply because that's, that's the tax ban that most of us fall right. into. And of course, if, if you're earning um, 80 odd thousand plus, and then say 140,000 plus, then yeah, you are, you are definitely mm -hmm. paying more. 80% <laughs> of us aren't anywhere near okay. that. That's so, interesting. So the idea that if you have universal health care, you're going to be looking at tax rates of 50, 60, 70, 80%. Well, it's certainly not true in, in Australia. And what that does mean is that no matter which facility you go to, whether it's a, uh, a local doctor or a local medical mm -hmm. center or a public hospital, you don't need to worry about insurance because you don't need mm -hmm. it. Um, and that's why most Australians, I think, I think more than 50% of Australians haven't bothered to, to get private health insurance because we don't okay. need it. Not because we can't right. afford it because our, our health insurance is much cheaper than yours because the government subsidizes mm -hmm. it for a start. And the government has a website where you can compare all health insurance plans right across the nation available to you because of course health insurance can sell across state lines. There's no restrictions. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can simply put in the details that you want for your family and say, this is the type of coverage I want. And this government website will provide you with all the available plans across the nation from all the available providers. And you can have a look at one that suits you and then you can go and contact them and say, yeah, I'd, I'd like right. to sign up with you guys. And because by law, they are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of pre-existing conditions mm -hmm. or age, yep. they can't stop yeah. you you signing up. I do they think they can't stop you signing up with cheaper or, or more right. expensive insurance, whatever you want. Whatever you want. Whatever you want I do pay. think we need, we need something similar. We need some kind of solution, but the way our two party system is here, they refuse to work together. So, you know, if, if another party, 
you know, is in control, they're just going to try to shut down anything that the previous party did and vice versa. So I'm really not sure how we're going to accomplish anything. <laughs> It, it is a much more complicated issue in in the US. Mm -hmm. I mean, some countries have had universal health care for a long time. Germany's got one of the oldest universal health care systems. I'm pretty sure that was introduced. Pretty sure that was introduced by Bismarck. Yeah, way before the, even the 30s. Before even the really? 30s. So Germany's had theirs for a long time. Ours wasn't fully in place until about I think late 70s early oh, to mid eighties okay. it was sort of based in. So again, it, you, people can't even say, Oh, but it's too late to change that. Well, Australia is not a particularly old country. We're, right. in, you know, we're, we're even younger than you guys. And we, we took a long mm -hmm. time to actually implement a, a full scale universal healthcare system. And, and we've had ours for less than mm -hmm. 50 years. And you know, we still managed to, right. to get it in, but, it all depends on, it's about priorities and whether or not the government has the political will exactly. to deal with it. Yeah. So I know yeah. pharmaceuticals in your company, uh, in your country are very expensive. In Australia, they're very, very cheap and they're heavily subsidized by the government as well. So the, the older a medication is, as you know, the, the cheaper it tends to be because generics can now be made because sure. the, the patents no longer apply. And the Australian government uses that to its advantage to purchase uh, pharmaceuticals from international companies at greatly reduced prices. It, it argues mm -hmm. and, and, and bargains very aggressively. And although we're only a, a small country in terms of population, we're only about 25 million. Once other countries see that we've got a good deal, it allows them to place greater pressure on that company to get a good deal for them as well. And that's right. particularly the case with countries that have universal healthcare. So in Australia, we have something called the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, which ensures that a huge range of pharmaceuticals are so heavily subsidized that for, for most of them, the maximum that you will pay for a prescription is about, you know, $41, regardless of, of the medication. Wow. You know, there, so there, insulin, people, people die because they can't afford their insulin here. Yeah. Well, insulin for, is, is, is cheaper. When I looked at the prices of insulin in, in, in the U S it just made my eyes water. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. not diabetic. No one in my family is, but I know yeah. I've got friends who are diabetic. Yeah. So sure, me too. insulin was, was quite stunning to me because that is a, that is a basic requirement. It's not exactly a luxury drug. No, it, it's it not. Is an it's not an elective drug that people need to get through the day. There so, was another story a few years ago where there was a young man and he happened to be in Minneapolis and he was a diabetic and he um, was working, but he didn't have insurance and, he didn't want to bother his mother with the, the cost of his insulin. And I think he started diluting it somehow, but he, he died. The kid died. He was in his early twenties. And it's just, that's just ridiculous. That should not be happening. No, no, I think in a, in an advanced first world nation with a crazy amount of, of money, which mm -hmm. the U S certainly is. And, mm -hmm. and that pretty much applies to all the leading uh, developed nations and and even Australia's in that because we're quite we're quite affluent as well. That's really not something that that's right. excusable. To, to exactly. Be um, exactly. So yeah, in Australia, if you want to buy private health insurance, you can, mm -hmm. but there is no requirement to do so. There's no 
government mandate saying that you have to. Not only that, but if you do buy private health insurance, you can still use the public system as much as you like with no penalty yeah. whatsoever. There is a, a small rebate on health insurance premiums if you choose to buy them. But even with that, because competition is is so strongly encouraged and, and there's no restrictions with selling insurance across state lines, for example, and because the mm -hmm. public system is so popular, health insurance companies have to compete very aggressively with each other in order to to win customers. So there is no room for them for to inflate prices or or to try and exclude certain types of patients the law doesn't allow mm -hmm. it and and um it wouldn't make sense it doesn't anyway. make financial sense for them right no when yeah. you've got a when you've got a population most of whom are using the public system because it's it's so good and it's basically free sure. then you can't afford to say well our insurance premiums are six thousand dollars a month kind of thing i mean right yeah um it's it's just we, we don't have private health insurance for the moment. We we don't yeah we well, don't really need it. We haven't. Well, and even if we had to get psychiatric treatment under our healthcare system, you're entitled to um, ten free psychiatric visits a year. So, and for a lot of people, that works out pretty well. You could you could basically right. see a psychiatrist or a psychologist almost once a month for a year, free of free of charge, which is pretty good. So, mm -hmm. the provisions are there if if you need them. No, but mental health is just as important as physical health, in my opinion. And, you know, we, we need to have a system here where that, that is appreciated and that is, the, you know, mental health patients are cared for just as much as, as physical health. So, yeah, I would like to have now, that. No, I'm not, I'm not saying the, the Australian system is perfect. I mean, some of the European systems are really, really good. France, for example, is widely recognized as having one of the best healthcare systems in the world okay. um the australian system definitely needs some improvement and there's been a lot of talk about about funding and and uh, allocation of of funds to to hospitals and and this kind of thing but given a choice between our system and say the u.s system I'm, i would certainly prefer our yeah. system I'm pretty, i don't blame you pretty happy with <laughs> it sounds pretty good yeah um, so this has been a big sidetrack, but it's been good to it talk is good about. To talk I, I think about. Um, because I don't know what your system is like, and I, yeah, you know, I don't know what you hear about of, of the American yeah. system. But it's it helps because this all ties into the issues that you're dealing with here: the cost of sure. treatment for something like leukemia or the. Um, oh, and I know, I know families who have been broken financially because of their child's cancer treatment. I know that, and I, I mean we were very lucky that the health insurance that we had um, we, we were able to pay for anything out of pocket fairly easily and it didn't break us financially. It's, it's very sad for some of these. There was, so when Brendan had his um, stem cell transplant last year, there were other families in the transplant ward, of course, and I got to know some of the other parents there. I'm very lucky also, I've got a, I've got a full-time job as a technical writer, and I'm, I was able to do my work there in the hospital. My, my employer was really great about letting me take the time off that I needed and also being very flexible where I was able to work either at home or in the hospital. So I'm very grateful for that as well. But there were moms there who, 
they had to be somewhere in order to work. And one of them came from out of state. Another one came from East Texas, which was very far away. It's not a drive that you can make easily. She was living in the hospital, so they were not able to work. I mean, that's when, that's when things get really tough. That is it. Um, it's, it's a pretty brutal situation when the support simply isn't available from the insurance company because you either can't afford it mm -hmm. or they found sufficient exceptions to exclude you from the service you thought you were going to be able to get from them. Whereas on the other hand, the, the level of government support is so low that it either doesn't help you very much or it doesn't apply to your situation or it's, it's inaccessible for whatever reason, or there's just so much paperwork to get through. It would, yeah. it would take you so long to qualify and go through all the hoops that, uh, you know, your your family member could be even mm -hmm. sick or, or could even be on the verge of death by that stage because the bureaucracy <laughs> takes takes so long and a lot of people simply do not have the luxury of time especially with a, a late diagnosis or an unexpected right. diagnosis right. or right. a very rapid onset yeah. um, cancer that yeah. moves very quickly in Australia, we've got a bit of a, a dark joke that uh, our healthcare system is called Medicare and in America, it's called GoFundMe. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so um, true. Everybody, I, everybody who has a, a, you know, a disease or cancer or something, you see GoFundMe everywhere. Oh my gosh. That's funny that you say that. Yeah, I I was quite stunned. I mean, I first heard that. I thought, oh yeah, I know what they're referring to, but you know, surely it's it's <laughs> not quite that bad. Then I started reading online. I thought, oh, yeah. it, it, it is, is actually that. If anything, it's it's worse. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was a bit of an eye opener. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, I've um, it's it's been really interesting to to discuss and see discuss these issues and see how it plays into your into your story you don't actually go into costs really in 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 the story and i'm, I'm assuming from the way you've, you've written it the that the family has the capacity to to meet their care costs i don't recall any big discussions about there was there was one part um, where um one of the high school friends did start a GoFundMe. Oh, and, and she they, gets ten thousand dollars from the that's, GoFundMe. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was that in, and I thought, oh yeah, there's your GoFundMe. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I didn't get the impression that the family was in great hardship, but it was it was nice to to see that. But yeah, it is a reminder that this kind of uh, this kind of condition and this this kind of treatment is still prohibitively expensive for a lot right. of people, and even right. a family that's quite comfortably well off is going to need a bit of an extra bump in finances and a bit sure. of a bit of a leg up to to meet some especially if they've got if they're a two income family you know they're especially if they're a two income family and they're used to having those two incomes so who's to say if they can manage on one income alone or not that's <clears throat> Well, that's it. People say, oh, but you're a two-income family. Well, what if one of the people who's producing an income is one of the people who's sick? I mean, that's, right. you know, that when your entire budget is is carefully balanced around the fact that you've got two incomes, that's suddenly right. dropping down to one is utterly catastrophic. So, wow. so yeah, although I, I do remember the, the GoFundMe, um, it was, um, yeah, that was in passing. I don't think you... You mentioned specifically the the cost of 
of treatment, though, as a I did not know issue for the, the family. Right. Um, but it was nice to have that little reminder in there to say, look, you know, this is a very real issue that people face and they just have to rely on the strength of the community and the willingness of, of local people yeah. to, to yeah. help them out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And a lot of people, sadly, simply do not have that luxury, which is why I think in the US, I think uh, church communities have been very good from what I've seen. A lot of church communities have been very good yes. at meeting this need, which is great because certainly yes. that's the kind of thing churches should be doing anyway. Um, should be doing, but exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it is pretty, um, at the same time, it's quite an indictment of, of the system that this that this has to be done. Yes, I so, agree. I agree. So wrapping up then, what would you like people to take away from your from your book? What would you like them well, to be to be left? What's what's the message, the main message you want to get across? So I guess my message, <clears throat> excuse me, or my call to action is really for younger people. So for teenagers and young adults who are interested in reading this story. I compare this novel to like a John Green novel, um, you know, The Fault in Our Stars, Turtles All the Way Down. There's also um, another uh, teen health book called Five Feet Apart. Fans of those types of books are going to enjoy Stuck, I believe. But there's also the message that I want young people to come away with that even if you're hearing from people in your family or in your circle that vaccines are dangerous take some time to talk to your own doctor go look at scientific publications go look at you know real evidence um, because vaccines are you know are truly life-saving and it can be very very harmful for a lot of people if too many people don't vaccinate their children and there are these outbreaks again of like we were saying that hasn't been seen in so many years polio and pertussis um and the measles unfortunately which are coming back and it, it's just not necessary it really isn't necessary that's certainly a, a really great message and, and definitely one that we need more than ever in, in these recent times with a, the huge amount of uncertainty about the pandemic and the, yeah. the paranoia that's starting to build up about vaccines and about uh, big pharma and medicine and, and the uh, medical industry in general. And it's a very sad thing to see at a time when we need science and medicine more than ever. And I well, used an analogy uh, in the book about how people love their cell phones, right? And people are all about the advancement of technology and they wanna get the latest and greatest cell phone. And they can't wait to get these new devices in their hands, you know, Medical advancement is the same thing. It is simply the advancement of medical technology as opposed to electronic technology. And I don't understand why people have such a hard time with that. It's, it's the same thing. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a good point. It's, 
I, there's still a lot of old myths that began with the advent of vaccination and the anti-vax community that sprang up immediately against it. Sure. There's a lot of those old myths haven't actually died. They've simply morphed into different shapes. I mean, Edward Jenner gave us vaccination and an anti-vax community sprang up immediately. Yeah to oppose his smallpox vaccine and some of the, you know, arguments and um, claims being made mirror those that are still being made today, even mm. though they are, are no more reliable or, or coherent or credible than they were back in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, it, I enjoyed yeah. your interview with Dr. Anna the other day. I've um, been a fan of hers for a while. And she said that, and I think this is absolutely true. There's always been the village nutter or the village idiot, right? But with social media, it's so easy for them to find like-minded people and they find their tribe. And then you talked about the Facebook algorithms that only spit out the stuff that you want to see, right? So you're being conditioned to think that, oh, I'm right because all these other people think the way I do. So it's just social media has really created a, a quite a storm of the anti-vaxxers, I think. Yeah, because social media is programmed to show you what you want to see. Yeah. It's not programmed to show you the truth. <laughs> So it doesn't take long to be sucked into right. a little echo chamber. And then after a while, all you're ever seeing is more material from that echo chamber or from similar echo chambers, which simply repeat the same mantras. Right. Yeah. I did thoroughly enjoy my interview with <laughs> Dr. Anna. She is a, a towering intellect yes. and an extremely experienced scientist and I, like you, I've, I've been following her for some time. In fact, I've been following her for um, a few years now. Me and too. Yeah. Yeah. She is, uh, she's one of my big top shelf science crushes mm-hmm. for sure. She's, she's really impressive. I agree. And very, very easy to talk to. Great sense of humor mm-hmm. and, and uh, a terrific personality. Mm-hmm. So if people want to buy your book, and honestly, why wouldn't they? Where <laughs> can they find it? Well, it's, it's on Amazon right now. I am a big fan of supporting a local bookstores. So I'm working on making it available to um, the smaller local independent bookstores as well. But right now, it, it's available on Amazon. So hopefully in the near future, it'll be more widely available. So that is Stuck by Diane Windsor, and it's available on Amazon. That's really terrific. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time this morning. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll speak again sometime. Maybe we'll have another, you'll have another book out. But, I would love um, it. I'd love to talk uh, to you again, Dave. This is great. Yeah, that would be really terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you.